That's good. All right. Um, if you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible, uh, we have uh, we have some extras, I think, back there. Somebody grab them. Is anyone here today without a Bible? We'd like you to be able to follow along with us. And, and uh, if you don't own a King James Bible, then you keep this as our gift to you. But at least you can follow along with the message. Just lift your hand up if you're here and you need a Bible this morning. Anyone at all? Okay. Anyone at all? All right. Okay, everybody's all set. All right, Romans chapter 15, if you will, this morning. Romans chapter 15. This is... uh, Pray for me, if you will, while I preach this morning, because this is not what I originally... the direction I was originally going to go in this morning, and I just got to reading again today, and the Lord just changed it up to this verse, and... uh, I'll tell you why in a minute, but if you'll turn there, Romans chapter 15. And we're going to read uh, verses 13 down through verse number 16. Romans 15, verses 13 through 16, and we're going to come back and park on verse number 13. We're just going to consider that verse today, but we need to just see the context here. You remember that this uh, latter part of Romans chapter 15, Paul is reminding the Gentiles. uh, Somebody asked me a few weeks ago, what's a Gentile? If you're not Jewish, you're Gentile. Anyone who's not a Jew, so Italian, Polish, and everything else, um, we're all Gentiles. The Old Testament is written to the Jews and to prepare the nation of Israel for the coming of their Messiah. But as you know, they rejected him, and, and God is not finished with the nation of Israel. They're, that whole nation will be restored to a fellowship with God in the future. And uh, the Bible says, they will look upon me whom they have pierced. And uh, they're going to see their Savior and their Messiah and be saved in the future. But right now, for these last 2,000 years, Israel has walked in unbelief blindness, and people many times can't understand why God would allow that to happen, and you wouldn't know why God allowed it to happen unless you had the book of Romans, because in the book of Romans, chapter 9, 10, and 11, God explains to you why he allowed the nation of Israel to fall, to stumble, and to be separated now from God, and the answer is so that all the rest of the world could get saved. And so God had a heart from the beginning to save the whole world. That's what he promised to Abraham, is that through Abraham's seed, which is Christ, all the families, all the families of the earth would be blessed. So God intended from the beginning to get to everybody, to save everybody. But the Old Testament was preparation for that. And the Old Testament was all preparation for the nation of Israel. But they failed as Many times we do, but as a nation, they failed. They, in their blindness and their unbelief, they rejected their king, their savior. And did God know it would happen? Yes. Did God allow it to happen? Of course he did. Did God have a reason for allowing it to happen? Yes, he did. It was you and me. And uh, it's a horrible thing, but many times out of horrible thing, God, things, God brings tremendous blessings. 
It happens again and again and again in life. Horrible things uh, end up God using them for blessings. And the salvation of most of us in this room, because most of us in here are Gentiles, there's a few Jews, but, um, but their salvation also is the same as ours now. Because in this time, God saves the Jew and the Gentile the same way. It's a gospel that God had in his heart and mind for the Gentiles, but it's really for the whole world. It's for the whole world. And, but, so, the book of Romans makes that clear. But in this portion of chapter 15, God is, um, the, Paul is writing here to us and uh, just reminding us that it was through God allowing Israel to fall uh, that now you and I can rejoice that we are saved. Uh, verse 14, uh, verse number 9 says that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. Um, verse 10, and again He saith, Rejoice ye Gentiles with His people. That's an Old Testament quote. Verse 11, and again, praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles. Verse 12, and again, Isaiah saith, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he that shall rise to reign over the Gentiles. In him shall the Gentiles trust. So God just showing you that Hey, this, this idea of saving the Gentiles was not an afterthought. You know, it wasn't just after Israel fell, then God said, oh, now what do I do? No, God had this in his heart from the beginning of time. And uh, even though he spent all those hundreds, thousands of years getting Israel ready, he knew in their heart at that time they would, God knew, of course, because he could see the future, he knew that they were going to fall. But out of that fall, he brought the gospel to you and I. And, uh, but now, in this portion of Scripture, in verse number 13 down through verse 16, it sort of sums up in one verse. And I looked at this verse again, and I wasn't intending to go backwards to verse 13, because we were going to move on from verse 17 down. But because of some things that happened in this past week, and I'll share them with you in a second, the Lord just drew my attention back to verse number 13. And as I thought about it and looked at it this morning... Uh, I, I really believe this is where the Lord wants us to, just what, what He wants us to consider this morning. So you pray for me, because it's not all you know, completely together in my own mind, and uh, I, I hope it will be a blessing to you this morning. But look at the verse. It says, Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Aren't you glad that when you believe on Jesus Christ, you get some things that money can't buy? Joy. Joy. I know a lot of rich people who are some of the most unhappy people you'd ever want to meet. Money can't give you joy. But believing can bring you not only joy, but peace. Peace. It says, and so Paul is saying to the world, to us especially, the Gentiles, it says, Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. Now, we're going to come back to that, but let's just read the next few verses. And I myself also am persuaded of you, my brethren, that ye also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Uh, that's going to give you, we're going to give you an opportunity tonight to admonish one another. You know, and with the Word of God, we gather around the Lord's table tonight. And that's the church's opportunity to encourage and admonish one another. To you, especially you men, pray and ask the Lord to give you something that you might have a, a word tonight. You know, a word fitly spoken, something that could be a blessing to the church. But we're supposed to be able to admonish one another. And of course, you can only do that if you've got the book 
in your heart. It says, verse 15, then, nevertheless, brethren, I have written the more boldly unto you in some sort as putting you in mind because of the grace that is given to me of God, that I should be the minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. And as you know, Paul had that unique ministry. Unlike the other apostles, there were there were 12 perfectly good apostles back in Jerusalem, Peter, James, John, and all the rest of them. There wasn't anything wrong with them, but God uh, kept them as ministers of the gospel of the circumcision to the Jewish people. They continued to stay in Jerusalem and continued to minister to the Jewish believers, but Paul was sent on a unique mission. He was sent out into the world to take the gospel of the grace of God to the rest of the world. Quite a responsibility on the shoulders of, of, uh, of Paul. But he, he counted it a joy, and he knew he could have never done it were it not for the grace of God. He said, because of the grace that is given unto me, the grace is simply ability from heaven an opportunity from heaven, uh, power from heaven, uh, and that um, those open doors that are given to you by God, that's grace. And Paul said, uh, um, in another place, he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And by God's grace, he said, I labored more abundantly than you all, meaning is referring to the other apostles. But here it says, because of the grace that is given unto me of God, that I should be the minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering up of the Gentiles, meaning, we, I think we spoke on this the last time, is that you and I are an offering to God. Because before the world was made, God said to His Son, Son, the father said to the son, if you ask of me, I'll give you the heathen for your inheritance. That's us. And Jesus Christ asked for us. The only catch was, son, it's going to cost you. It's not going to be free. You can have the heathen as your inheritance, but it's going to cost you. What's going to cost me? You're going to have to go to the cross. You're going to have to die for their sin. You're going to have to go to hell. But son, don't worry. I promise you eternal life. I promise you that I will raise you from the dead. And he went to that cross by faith, knowing that God would not leave his soul in hell. That's what Psalm 1611 says. Thou, uh, Psalm 1610, thou shalt not leave my soul in hell. So the Lord Jesus Christ took that, paid that price, and so that he might... And so when the Gentiles, the body of Christ, the church, is brought to heaven one day, it's almost as like... Like, here comes the bride. <laughs> That's what happens at, a, you know, at the altar. The, the, the poor old nervous groom is standing down here. His knees are knocking. But I'll tell you what, I've been there, and, and you've been there too, and you've seen it even when you're not the groom. When those back doors open and that bride steps into that aisle, isn't there sort of like a collective sort of, oh, wow. Well, that's nothing like what's going on in that groom's heart. It's, and that bride comes down there and she's presented to him. She's given to him. And she is offering herself to him. The father of that bride says, you know, who giveth this woman to, this, to be married to this man? And so in a sense, the bride of Christ, the Gentile church, the body of Christ is going to be offered to God. And Paul said, I've been given grace that I should be the apostle to the Gentiles, that the offering up of the Gentiles might be acceptable to God, being sanctified by the Holy Ghost. But, so this all has to do with what God is doing here in our midst. And it, it started, you know, before the world was made. Uh, Jesus Christ came to pay the price so that 
the whole world could be saved. And, uh, and what the Spirit of God has been doing in these last 2,000 years is trying to do a work in your heart and get you ready for the day of your offering, the day of your presentation, when you are presented to the Lord in heaven. But now notice what it says in that context. Let's go back and look at verse number 13 again. It says, Now, the God of hope, the God of hope. I'm, I'm glad He's a God of hope. He's not a God of discouragement. He's a God of hope. If you know the God of this Bible... You should not be without hope if you know him because he's the God of hope. He's the one. He's the only one who can give you any hope. Real hope comes from him. He's also earlier in chapter 15. Remember, he was called the God of patience, the God of patience. And in other places, he's called the God of peace. In Second Corinthians, he's called the God of comfort. All those things are mentioned in chapter 15. Peace, hope, comfort, joy. And he is the God of all those things. But here, especially in verse number 13, we know that the key, the, 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 the primary thing we're supposed to get out of verse number 13 is hope. And he's the God of hope. But now notice, there's three things mentioned in this verse. And that's what I'm hoping we're going to just look at this morning. Three words. And they're mentioned in a particular order. And no word in the scriptures is, is out of order. Not only is every word of God pure, I believe... And if you are here in part of this church for any amount of time, you know what we believe, and I trust you do too, that every word of God is pure, it's preserved, it's exactly where it should be in the Bible, there's nothing out of order, I don't change a punctuation mark, I don't move a comma, I don't change anything. I believe it's all got the divine hand of God on it, and it's exactly the way it's supposed to be. And if you believe that, you'll get more out of your Bible. That's when the Bible really begins to come alive to you when you have reverence and respect under the words of God and you esteem them more than your necessary food. So even the order that God says things in in the scriptures, sometimes in a verse, it has a doctrinal implication because of the order that God puts words in. Now, the order of these three words is very significant to us this morning. And as soon as I pray, I'm going to tell you why. Because I had a conversation this past week with a young man. Many of you were praying for me during that conversation. I want to give you the outcome of it, and then you'll understand why I wanted to go back and park on this verse for a second this morning. Joy, ho- uh, joy, peace, and hope. In that order. Joy, peace, and hope. That's what we have in Jesus Christ. And I want to think of it like this. <clears throat> joy. And we're going to go back and look at each one of these individually, I, I hope, and have time for all this. But joy. Joy is what you receive from knowing that you are saved. Joy. Peace is what you receive from knowing that you are secure. Hope is what you have as a result of those two things. Joy is what comes from knowing you're saved. On the day of my wedding, you know, I had that same feeling like a groom standing down here, as old as I was, and as many weddings as I've done. You know, it's not, you know, I'm always happy for the guy that's having that experience, but then I'm glad the Lord allowed me to. And uh, so the doors opened and I saw my wife. And that day, you know what I had that day? I had joy, like you did the day of your wedding. Great joy. I didn't have peace that day. I had joy. You know when the peace came? 
is that every morning when I open my eyes, and she's still there. And every morning when she opens her eyes, I'm still there. You know where peace comes from? Knowing that that relationship is secure. That's the peace. That's why some of you have no peace. You've never learned to rest in your Savior. Some of you have no peace in your marriage. Because you don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. You don't know if she's going to be here tomorrow, gone tomorrow, he's going to be here tomorrow, gone tomorrow. Now, some of you finally started paying attention when I said that. But you know the only way you can have peace in your relationship with Jesus Christ is to rest in the fact that it is a finished work of God and there isn't anything you need to do to maintain that salvation. If I thought I had to keep myself saved, I would have no peace. There is no peace in that. The peace comes in knowing I'm secure. (laughs) I can't lose this. There's the... There's the peace. The joy comes first. The peace comes next. And because of that joy and that peace, I have hope. (laughs) I got an abundance of hope. Hope has to do with the future. So look at the way the Lord says this here. I don't know. And I'm going to pray and then I'm going to tell you why I wanted to go back and look at this verse, even though we we should have been a little further into the book of chapter 15. But... Let's pray and I'll tell you why. All right, Father Lord, I do thank you this morning for an opportunity to just look again at the Scriptures and may they speak to every heart here this morning. May the truth of this verse especially be impressed on our heart. Help us this morning, Lord, as was already said and as we've already sung. Lord, just give us a glimpse of our Savior again today. Help us, Lord, to see the wonder of Calvary the wonder of the cross, the amazing miracle that you accomplished, Lord, not only on Calvary, but then in our hearts when you brought that salvation to us individually. And help us, Lord, that the truth of the Scriptures, Lord, would be clear to us today. I pray for our visitors today, Lord. If there's someone here today who isn't sure of their own salvation, maybe they've never understood what it means to be born of the Spirit of God. I pray that today might be the day when they're ready to open their heart and receive you and be saved. And Lord, help us that are saved, Lord, that we could just rejoice again as we consider the truth of all that you've done for us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I sent out a text a few days ago and I asked you to pray because I had a meeting with a young man who used to be a part of our church for a long time and was here for 13 years, moved away a couple of years ago and then drifted away from the truth. And uh, not in every area, but in one particular area. And had he kept it to himself, it wouldn't have been such a big issue. But he decided to just, you know, go on the Internet and on Facebook and, and declare that he no longer believed the things that he once believed in a, in, in a particular area. And um, I don't have Facebook, but some of you that do, you know, told me about it. And, and uh, one dear lady brought me a copy of all the, the conversation that went on between this guy and and others, and some of whom were you you guys, and, and the answers that were made, you know, to his new doctrine. And, but the doctrine that he had um, decided he didn't believe any longer is the doctrine of uh, the security of the believer, meaning that once you get saved, your salvation is secure forever. You're, you're saved forever. 
And he said very boldly, he says, I no longer believe that. And he says, I think, and I, I, I don't remember, I didn't memorize the, what do you call that, your status or something when you put it up there? Is it, what is that called? Status? Standing? Um, I know what my status is, <laughs> by the way. I have a perfect standing. My state's not too good. <laughs> that goes up and down, but my standing is perfect in the Lord. All right, does that qualify as status, I guess? But he said his status was, you know, the, that eternal security was one of the most damaging or dangerous or something like that doctrines that Christians had ever, you know, been taught and that it was originally taught by men who uh, don't even love the Scriptures, that hate the Scriptures. I mean, all kinds of stuff. And it's like, like wait a minute. I know this kid. <laughs> like, and in some of the responses from some of you and others, I mean, were equally, uh, you were equally shocked. It's like, what in the world? What happened? And, um, and I, was, I tell you, I was very blessed by many of your answers. Those of you that did respond, it was like, praise the Lord. Even some of our ladies had a tremendous, you know, loving kind of a rebuke. It was like, praise the Lord. You know, uh, it's very hard to deceive somebody who gets filled up with the Word of God and stays in love with the Scriptures. So I know something went wrong somewhere for this young man. But anyway... Um, and several of you actually even picked up the phone and called him, which was good. Uh, but then he, he said he was coming here for a visit, and he did, with his wife, and asked if he could speak to me. So I didn't let on that I knew anything, you know. And I uh, said, sure, man, I'd love to meet with you. You want to have... So we, we only had a little gap of time, but we, we decided to go to breakfast. So that's why I sent the text out for you to just pray for me at that meeting. And uh, I wish I could tell you it went really well. I wish I could tell you that, wow, praise the Lord, he, you know, he changed his mind. That, that was not the case. Um, we went back and forth with scripture verses and scripture verses, and most of the scripture verses that I used, he'd say, well, that's not really what that means. You know, really, if you look at the context or if you look the meaning of that word up, I said, well, doesn't the Bible say that we're sealed? Well, sealed doesn't really mean like locked up and secure. You know, it means to be marked. Uh, so, and that's, of course, sometimes that's true, but most of the time in the scriptures, it means to be sealed up and made secure. You know, they sealed the tomb. They didn't just mark it. They sealed it. All right, so, um, but anyway, it was things like that. So many of the verses were, well, that's not really what that means. And, and I did a lot of study on that. You know, the, the, so it's like, so we weren't really getting anywhere. About the only thing that, that made him stop and think was, at one point I said, well, um, were the Laodiceans saved or lost? You know, the Laodiceans in Revelation chapter 3. It's a group of people that made God sick, and God just spews them out of his mouth. And they're, they're blind, they're sick, they're wretched. They're so far, there's, there's, so, there's so much sin, they don't even know their own true condition. I said, were those people saved or lost? Because from the description that he gave me of how a person could lose their salvation, because he said that, and when I asked him, well, how is it that a person could be saved at one time, but then lost later on? Well, if you don't live it, if you don't walk in the light, this was his big verse, if you don't walk in the light as he is in the light, then you won't have fellowship with Jesus Christ and his blood will not cleanse you. He said that the blood of Jesus Christ only cleanses you of your sin up until the moment you're saved. And then from that point on, the sins you commit after that, you have to stay in fellowship with God or the Lord will not cleanse the rest of them. And then you lose your salvation. So, yes, wow. Is what it's like. Okay, I couldn't believe I was hearing this, but anyway, but um, 
and said, yeah, so I'm saying, so the blood of Jesus Christ is not effective. Well, how many of your sins were future when he died on the cross? All of them. So the, he only washes the ones away up until the moment you're saved, but his blood that was shed 2,000 years ago does not cleanse and doesn't wash away the sins that are future. So no, you have to walk in the light as he is in the light. Then you can have fellowship one with another, and his blood will cleanse you from your sin. And uh, whosoever is born of God doth not sin, he said. Uh, for he is born of God, and a seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin. So, so it, was, it was going along like that. I said, okay then. Well, th so then somebody who doesn't walk in the light, somebody who's not faithful, somebody who doesn't read their Bible, somebody, a Christian who falls away from God and gets backslidden like a prodigal son. So you could go so far in sin as a Christian, then you're no longer a Christian. You could go so far in sin as a child of God that you're no longer a child of God, that you're no longer born again. You'd need to get born again again. Well, you're telling me. You could be a son of God, but then you're not a son of God. But you could repent, and then you've got to be a son of God again. Then you could be born again again. But if, then if you backslide, then you're not a son of God anymore, and you have to be born again again again. So you just keep, you could go through life that way. But you've got to make sure that at the moment of your death, you're in that state of being born again. Because you wouldn't want to, be, you wouldn't want to die when you're not in that state of being born again. I said, well, then based on your description, were the Laodiceans saved or lost? And he did not know what to say. Based on your description... They've got to be lost. That, that cannot be a saved crowd in Revelation chapter 3. Sick, blind, wretched, so bad that God is sick of them and spews them out of his mouth. And it's not that he's spewing their salvation out of his mouth or rejecting them as sons of God. But you can make God pretty sick. I said, and then God, you remember Revelation 3.20? It says, behold, God said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door. Now, we use that verse when we're talking to someone as if it were a verse speaking about salvation. I mean, we, and it's not wrong to do that, but that is not a salvation verse. Because it isn't salvation that he's offering the guy behind the door. It's if someone hears and opens the door, I will come in and sup with them. You know what sup is, right? Supper. Lord's Supper. Fellowship. Some Christians, you know what sin causes in your life? It causes you to lose fellowship with God. Just like sin in any relationship causes the two in that relationship to lose fellowship with each other. You may still be bound by a covenant, but you may not have fellowship with one another. And sometimes that fellowship can cause a real separation where you're not even talking to each other. Anybody ever been there? Okay. So, I mean, there are times when Christians aren't even, they're so far away from the Lord, they're not even talking to Him anymore. That wouldn't be anybody in here, right? But you can be so far away from, that God isn't talking to you anymore either. You open the Bible and you're just not getting anything out of it. You know what? God's not speaking to you. You know what you need? You don't need to get saved again. You need to open the door of your heart and have some fellowship again with God. You need to invite Him in and ask Him to sit down at your table. And just be quiet while He talks to you. And then, and then start talking to Him. Have some fellowship again. So He says, if any man hear my voice... And, and open the door, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. Because the very next verse says, For as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. So the people behind that door was somebody he loved. He was missing the fellowship. He said, I don't want to be on the outside. I want to sit in there with you. And as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. The Lord doesn't chasten the unsaved. He only chastens every son whom he receiveth. Right? If, he, if you're a child of God 
and you get out of fellowship with God, you know what he's going to do? He's going to rebuke you and chasten you. Why? So he can have fellowship with you again. And then to the Laodiceans, he says, And he that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne. God never offers an unsaved person an opportunity to sit in his throne and reign with him in eternity. Those are saved people in Laodicea. We don't want to acknowledge that, but... Sometimes we like to relegate those Laodiceans. That must be the Catholics. That must be the Episcopalians. You know, that's, that's that lost religious crowd. No, it isn't. It's that saved crowd that is so full of the world, as Brother Pat said this morning, so in love with sports, your family, your kids, your education, you know, your extracurricular activities, your hobbies. Those are the things that, you know, thrill your soul. You have a hard time singing that song, All That Thrills My Soul Is... My car, all that thrills my soul is my, you know, who knows? But normally it's not Jesus. That's why it's so hard to sing that song sometimes. All that thrills my soul is Jesus. And that, so that, that crowd in Laodicea is a crowd like many Christians today who are so full of the things of this world, they don't have any fellowship with Jesus Christ. But anyway, and thus the reason for the message this morning, which now I might not even have any time to preach. But anyway, all right, so let's go back. Um, Romans, chapter, Romans chapter 15, because somehow I lost my place already. Romans chapter 15, and let's just go and look at those three words. Joy, peace, joy, peace, and hope. Now, the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. The joy of the Lord. Let's go back to Psalm chapter 40. <clears throat> you know, that's probably the first emotion you felt when you got saved. I know that was the first emotion I felt when I got saved. And I remember, do you remember the day you got saved? Do you remember that the, gospel, the day the gospel was made clear to you and you did something that was probably so simple at the time, your reason, you know, your mind is telling you, can't be this easy. The devil is whispering in one ear saying, you know, there's got to be more to it than this. You're going to have to live it to get it. You're going to have to be religious to get it. I remember, I remember when it was made clear to me and I, and I had the same reaction. It can't be this simple. It, it can't be. This, there's got to be more to it than this. Just to believe on Jesus Christ, but that's exactly all that it takes and nothing more in order to be saved. God has made it simple. That's why there's so much joy in it. Uh, look at Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord, and He inclined unto me and heard my cry. He brought me up also out of an horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, and established my going. So I know that this is not a salvation passage necessarily, but it's similar, and it's like that experience when you heard the gospel for the first time, and the Lord lifted you up out of that pit of sin that you were in, that bondage that you were in when you heard the gospel for the first time. Uh, and, and the reaction, the responses in your heart is, notice verse 3, it says, He hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. I remember how I felt the first day I realized that my sins were washed away. I mean, it was, it was like, yeah, well, that's nice. Oh, no, no. Oh, really? That's what happened? Okay, that's good. I'm glad to hear that. What's for lunch? Oh, no. The day it dawned on me 
Well, I mean, I'd heard the gospel from the time I was this big. And I, ever, I never appreciated its power. I knew what it was. I mean, I knew Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I know that. Like many of you know that. If I said Jesus died on the cross for your sins, some of you in here that may not be saved would say, well, I know that. I believe that. Well, I did too from the time I was old enough to walk. I mean, my parents told it to me my whole life. And I, I, I recognized that it was a fact. Yes, he died on the cross. And yes, he died for my sins. That's nice. But then one day, it got real personal. Then one day, I realized the power of that. Then one day, I realized the sufficiency of that. That there wasn't anything that I could ever add to that to, make, to save me. When I realized, what, what the, the moment of salvation is when you realize that what took place on the cross was a wonder and a miracle of God, and it is enough to save the worst sinner. Enough to save the worst among us. That, that day, when I realized that, that day is when the joy came. I'd heard the gospel before, but the joy came the day I realized that was for me. And the day that I realized, if I trust Him, you mean, I trust Him and I trust that, and then I'm free, I'm, I'm forgiven, I'm, I'm cleansed? Yeah. That's it? Yes. Just call on Him? Yes. That day when I did it, oh, the joy. The joy in my heart. The joy because I was cleansed, I was free, I was saved, I had a Savior. That's, that joy comes from knowing that you are saved. If you don't, have never experienced that joy, I doubt whether you'd ever gotten saved. If your salvation is just something, you know, like clinical, technical, you know, it's just the technicalities and, and you could define it and explain it, but it never thrilled your heart, it never made you just wonder at the amazing Savior that Jesus Christ is, have you ever been just overwhelmed with who He is and what He did for you? Has the cross ever made you just, you know, it's almost unexplainable. You stand in awe of it when you consider what took place on that cross. It's more than just some fact of history. That, the God, that God Himself would become a man and die in my place as a sinner. And though he never knew sin, there was no sin in him, but he would die for me. The amazing wonder of that. And that I could be clean as a result of trusting him. I could be his as a result of trusting Jesus Christ. That joy of knowing you're saved. You know what? If you're saved here today, you ought to dial it back to that day that you got saved. If you've lost your joy. David said, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. You can be saved, but you can lose your joy. Just start filling your mind up with the stuff of this world. That doesn't bring joy. Man, that brings worry. That brings frustration. That brings pride. Boy, you, you meditate on the things of this world long enough, you'll be miserable. You'll be miserable. But I guarantee you, you spend a little time, lock yourself away with the Word of God. Just lock yourself away. Shut everything off, the TV, the radio, and everything else. Turn your phone off. And you, every time you ever shut yourself up with God, you know what? You'll feel that joy rekindled in your heart. And some of you are walking around like sourpusses. You walk around like you lost your last friend. You walk around depressed, and you wonder, why doesn't anybody want to be around me? 
Because I have struggles with my own. I don't, <laughs> I don't want you bringing me down. I mean, I'll be there if you need the help. But you know what? Man, that's not, a, that's not a very happy way to have fellowship. But some of you don't have that joy because you're meditating so much on your failures, somebody else's failures. Some people do one or the other. They're depressed because they just keep looking at their own failure. But some people are so depressed and unhappy because they keep looking at somebody else's failure. Somebody that let them down. Somebody that did them wrong. You can't forget it. You won't forgive it. You won't let it go. You won't give grace. You won't give mercy. There's no charity in you for that person. And you're wondering why you don't have any joy. Joy comes because you know you're saved. Joy comes because you know you're forgiven. Look at uh, Psalm 162. Psalm 162, while we're in Psalms. Psalm 162. Psalm 162. I'm sorry, what did I say? (laughs) How many of you started turning? Like me. I'm looking. I'm, I'm actually looking. I said, wait a minute. I ran out of Psalms. Psalm 150. All right, that's what I jotted down, and I'm not even sure what I meant. Let me see. I hope I meant Psalm 62. Oh, boy, that was fun. All right, let's see. Did I mean Psalm 62? Uh, Oh, I don't know what I meant now. Let me see. (laughs) 142? It says, Then was our mouth filled with singing. That's the verse that I had in mind. Then was our and we were. Um, then was my our mouth filled like singing. It's talking about Israel when they were delivered from their captivity. Hey, we got a several chapters in the running here now. Let's see. Uh, what is it? One twenty-six. Okay, I just I reversed the numbers. I'm sorry. I'm getting dyslexic in my old age here. One twenty-six. <clears throat> there we go. One twenty-six. Now, I know, again, this is not a salvation chapter here. This is not, but it's, but many times, remember in the Old Testament, what God did for Israel is a picture of what he does for you. When he, what he did for that nation and delivering them is what he does for you when he saves you individually. So there's similarities here. Look at verse one. When the Lord turned again, the captivity of Zion. In other words, when he, when they were prisoners and then God came in and delivered them from their imprisonment and he, he got them free. When that happened, we were like them that dream. It's like, wow, this is like, this is too good to be true. Then was our mouth filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. Then said they among the heathen, the Lord hath done great things for them. The Lord hath done great things for us, whereof we are glad. We are glad. You know, that's like our salvation right there. We were in captivity. We were in bondage. We were bound in our sin. We were condemned and headed for hell. And when the Lord turned that around, when He turned our captivity, when He opened that jail cell door and He allowed us to go free because of the blood of Jesus Christ, in the beginning it was like, boy, I was like one that dreamed. I remember after I got saved, I was in Ohio at the time when I got saved. And I remember my brother had had, my younger brother had had a big part in me getting saved. He had wouldn't leave me alone. He kept pestering me, inviting me to church, inviting me to church. And I didn't want to go and didn't want to go. And one day he knocked on my door and he's standing on my front porch with tears in his eyes and trying to get me to come to church. And I did. I eventually went to church and a couple of days later I got saved. But then I remember 
afterwards, I, my fellowship with my brother, my younger brother, got really sweet right after that, you know, and I would go and just spend some time with him as a, at his apartment. And he lived down by the river, and there was a road that went along the river. And I remember I was walking home from his apartment one night just a few days after I got saved, and it's just like everything seemed so different. Everything, like, I was like dreaming. I just felt like I was just like in a dream. Walking down that road, and I was looking at the stars. It was late at night, and I'm looking at the stars, and they just looked so different. I was not a kid at the time. I had seen stars before, but they, didn't ever, they never looked like that before. And the river never looked that beautiful. Nothing ever looked like it did at that moment. There was just, I don't know, I was like somebody in a dream. Like, I had so much joy in my heart. Do you remember? I'm not saying you're saved by a feeling, but I'm telling you what, I wouldn't give you a nickel for a, or for a salvation that doesn't cause a feeling in you. That you don't rest and trust those feelings, but I'm glad that when you meditate on Jesus Christ, I feel something. I have joy. Joy is a feeling. It's an emotion. And there's joy, there's joy when you think about what you have in Jesus Christ. If you want your joy back, turn your eyes back upon Jesus Christ. Meditate on Him. Think about Him. Remember what He did for you. Go back and read those parts of the Bible where your Savior hung on a cross for you. Where He bore your sin. Go back to Isaiah 53. Go back to the Gospels. Go back to Psalm 22. You need to pick me up? Man, read Psalm 22. If that doesn't pick you up, you are not saved. If you can't read Isaiah 53 and crack a smile somewhere in there because of what your Savior did for you, you ought to check your heart make sure that you're really a child of God. Joy. The joy. We were like them that dream. Then was our heart glad. Look at Acts chapter 8. Remember the Ethiopian eunuch? And he was a religious guy. He had, all, he had religion. He was so religious. He went, I don't know how many hundreds of miles it is from Ethiopia to Jerusalem, but I guess you could figure that out. It's, it's got to be... Uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles before a train or a plane, and this guy's going in a chariot. How long did that take? He's going in a chariot from Ethiopia. Look on a map sometime. I'm sure there were no four-lane paved highway, highways either. It's desert between the Nile River and Ethiopia. So he's going from Ethiopia in a chariot all the way up to Jerusalem. I'd, that'd be fun to figure that out, how long that took. Because whatever it took getting there, it takes that getting back home again. And he did that three times a year. Because they were required to go out. He's not a Jew. He's just a Gentile who's worshiping like a Jew and going up to Jerusalem at those appointed times. And he'd been up there in Jerusalem worshiping like the Jews were supposed to do. Three times a year they had to go to Jerusalem for those feasts. And now in chapter 8, this Ethiopian eunuch, this is a devout religious man. And obviously he's a pretty good man because he's sitting in his chariot reading the Bible as he's traveling. So he's, he's worshiping, he's reading, but he doesn't understand what he's reading. He doesn't know Jesus Christ as his Savior. He's just trying to worship God the best way that he knows how, but he has not yet seen the truth of who Jesus is. And you remember what happens? God tells Philip, an evangelist, to go and get in the chariot with this guy. Then he runs up there and gets in the chariot with him and listens to where the guy's reading in the Bible. And it happens to be Isaiah 53. 
which is all about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, written in the Old Testament, 700 years before it happened. This guy's reading, and he doesn't under, and, and Philip says, you understand what you're reading? He goes, no, how can I? I? I need somebody to guide me. And so Philip said, and the Bible says, Philip opened his mouth at that same place in the Scriptures. And rather than jumping over here to this, this verse or that verse, he just took Isaiah 53, right where the guy is reading, and he preached unto him Jesus. He showed him that's talking about Jesus Christ. That's, it's not, Isaiah's not speaking about himself. He's speaking about some other man, Jesus Christ. And he preached it to him, Jesus Christ. You know what happened in that chariot? The preacher's explaining the Scriptures to him. He's got the Word of God open in his lap. The Holy Spirit's there because the Holy Spirit brought Philip there. So every, all the elements for somebody to get saved, the book, faith, the Holy Spirit working in your heart, they're all there. You know what happened to that guy. He got saved. He got saved. He's hungry. He's looking. He's reading. And God saved him. And then Philip says, must have told him, you know, well, after you get saved, the next step is you get baptized. And so the Ethiopian eunuch said, well, here's some water. What hinders me from getting baptized right now? Can I do it now? Philip said, if you believe, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And the Ethiopian said, I do. I do. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Stop the chariot. All right. So they climb down out of the chariot, puts him down in the water, baptizes him. And then the Bible says, and then the Holy Spirit caught away Philip and he saw him no more. So Philip took off. But the last part of Acts chapter 8, look at this. What did that uh, Ethiopian eunuch do from that point? It says, And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more. And he, the eunuch, went on his way. What? Counting his money, right? No. no. He went on his way, worrying about his problems, thinking about how he was going to fight with his wife when he got home. You know what happened? He just got introduced to Jesus Christ. You know what You know what that results in? Joy. Joy. The joy comes from knowing you're saved. All the times you look at somebody in the Scriptures who got saved, joy, you're going to find the word joy right there in the context. Look at Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. Here's another story of somebody getting saved. The, the uh, Philippian jailer, Paul and Silas, were in, uh, in Greece preaching the gospel, and they went to this town, Philippi, and they got arrested. They got thrown in prison for preaching. And um, they're sitting in the prison in the middle of the night. The, the, the Lord sends an earthquake, and the, the prison shakes apart, and the jailer thinks everybody's escaped, all his prisoners have escaped, and now it's gonna, you know, they're going to they're gonna blame him, and the, the authorities are going to blame him and kill him for having lost all these prisoners, and he's getting ready to just kill himself over it. And uh, Paul sees it and says, wait, don't do that. Do thyself no harm, for we're all here. And, but the, the, the jailer's been listening to Paul and Silas talk about the Lord all night long. Been listening to them praising God and singing psalms and hymns. So all night long, while these two guys are in shackles, instead of grumbling and complaining and, well, I can't believe that, man. Boy, you know what? <clears throat> I'm going to check the Constitution and see if my rights have been violated. You know, I, you know what? Give me, give me your phone, Silas. I'm going to call a good lawyer. You know, I mean, you know what? If I ever get my hands around the neck of that magistrate that put us in here, you wait. You see what I'm going to do. I'm suing these people. That's the way a Christian would handle it today. They violated my rights. I'm going to sue. What are these two guys doing? Just singing. There's not thought of suing. There's thought of singing. Joy, just joy, rejoicing, singing, praising the Lord, knowing 
that all things work together for good to them that love God and are the called according to his purpose. So they don't understand why they're in prison, but they know God has a reason. So they're just going to enjoy it while they're there and sing their way through it. And the jailer is listening to these two, these two guys singing and they're singing about Jesus. They're telling the story of the cross. They're singing. I don't know what hymns the saints had in that first century. I mean, the songbooks hadn't been written yet. So you know what they're singing? They're singing the psalms. I wonder what Psalm 22 sounds like set to music. Wouldn't that be something? They're singing the psalms. And this jailer is listening and listening. And you know what was going on in his heart. The Spirit of God is convicting him. And he's wondering, who is this one they're singing about? Because as soon as Paul and Silas come in I mean, and tell him, don't do yourself any harm, the Bible says that he calls for a light. He wasn't lighting his cigarette. He called for a lamp. And uh, he comes in before them, trembling, and falls down at their feet. And the first question out of his mouth. Why would he ask this question if it hadn't been what they were singing about all night long? Why would the first thing that comes out of this jailer's mouth is, What must I do to be saved? Why would he even know that to ask that question? Unless all night long, Paul and Silas are singing about being saved. Or maybe talking about, Silas, isn't it great? Hey, we're in prison, but isn't it great to be saved? Isn't it good to know your sins are forgiven? Yeah, man, this is a blessing. I don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. Maybe we'll be, you know, maybe we'll be in God's presence. But you know what? It's good to be saved. Why would these guys even, why would that jailer even ask that question if that wasn't what Paul and Silas were talking and singing about? The first question is, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Look at it. It's right there in verse number 30. Hey, by the way, if you're here this morning and you're not saved yet, it's not any more complicated than that right there. It, it, don't let religion complicate it for you. You know, if you've got some holy guy in some, you know, some holy garments telling you that, oh, no, you know, you need this, you need the sacraments, you've got to do this, got to do that, you've got to live it, you've got to be, you know, your good works are going to count one day when you get to heaven. God's going to look at all that you've done and he's going to weigh it against all your sin and you know, hopefully there'll be enough there to get you in. That's, that's a crock of you know what. That isn't Bible. Look at the verse right there. It doesn't get any simpler than that. Verse 30, he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? It says he was trembling when he said it. It said he was trembling. You know what trembling is, right? Your hands are shaking. Your knees are knocking. Your heart's beating. Boom, 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 boom. He's scared to death. I mean, he's not, afraid. he's not afraid of the earthquake. That's over. What would make a man afraid at a moment like that? He's just seen the power of God break this prison open. He's just seen two guys that should have got up and run. They stayed. He's been listening to the gospel all night long. And now he asks these words with a trembling heart. What must I do to be saved? I'm glad the answer was not, well, be a good person. And do the best you can. Believe in God and live a good life. And maybe at the end of your road, you'll go to heaven. I'm glad that wasn't the answer. I'm glad the answer wasn't, well, were you baptized as a child? Uh, then you don't have anything to worry about. I'm glad the answer was not, you know, well, um, you know, if you'll pay us some money, we can pray you into heaven. I'm glad the answer was simple, something everybody in this room can do. What must I do to be saved? Look at it, verse 31. In fact, would you read it together with me? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, 
and thy house. Simple, isn't it? Simple. Read a little further. It says, And they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. That's the jailer. Took Paul and Silas. Their, their back was all ripped to shreds from the beatings they had gotten. And it had stripes all over it. You know, cuts where the whip had torn their skin. And what's the he's probably the guy that put those stripes on their back. And what's he doing now? He's washing their back. They're brothers now. And he washed their back, their stripes, and was baptized. He and all his straightway. And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced. And rejoiced. You know what his house probably knew for the first time? Joy. Joy. To rejoice means to joy over and over and over again. Rejoice. It means a joy that's not just for a fleeting second. It's joy that just continues. It just bubbles up and it just keeps going because you set your mind on the things of God and on the Lord Jesus Christ and it's a joy that nobody can explain and nobody can understand and you can't pay any money to get it. It's something Jesus Christ has to give to you. It comes that moment you know your sins are forgiven and you finally understand who Jesus Christ is. There was joy in that man's house. Go back to Isaiah chapter 61 with me. Isaiah 61. Go down to verse number 10. There is an Isaiah 61, so we're good here. <laughs> Isaiah 61, 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. Why? For he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. Oh, you know what? Once you put on that robe of his righteousness, once you realize that you don't have to stand before God as a sinner in your own filthy rags of your righteousness, that God will wrap around you that perfect white garment of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and you can stand before the Lord and Him see only the righteousness of His Son. If that doesn't give you joy, you better check your pulse and see if you're breathing. The writer says, I will greatly rejoice. My soul shall be joyful. Why? For he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, as in a bride adorneth herself with jewels. Because that's what happens when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He gives you the righteousness of His Son, Jesus. That's the only way that you and I as sinners could ever hope to stand before God. You can't stand there and bring Him all your good deeds. Like the song says, Nothing in my hand, hands I bring, simply to Thy cross I cling. I have no, you have no righteousness of your own, nothing that God's impressed with. So well, I've done pretty good. I haven't killed anybody lately. I haven't robbed any banks lately. Now, I haven't taken the names Lord, the names, the name of the Lord in vain in the last few days. You know, you know, we we pat ourselves on the back real easy. And maybe you haven't killed anybody or robbed any banks, and maybe you are a good mother, and maybe you are honest on your taxes, and maybe you don't curse and 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 don't drink and don't smoke, and maybe you're just a fine example of a human being. God isn't impressed with that. 
He's seen a human being that far outshines you. His son, Jesus Christ, had no blemish, had no flaw, no sin, no thought that was ever wrong, no emotion that was ever wrong. And your righteousness is always compared to the righteousness of his son. And when God looks at your righteousness, he's not impressed. He's so unimpressed, the Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. But he's pretty impressed with the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. Because in him, there is no sin at all. Here's the deal. When you trust on, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, God says, I'll tell you what, I'll make you a deal. You can't get into heaven with that righteousness of yours because it's insufficient. It's imperfect. You may be a good person in your own eyes and all your relatives may think you can walk on water. But in the eyes of God who sees the heart knows the truth. He sees, he sees the reality of who you really are. And so that righteousness won't get you into heaven. And yet God wants you in heaven. And the only way into heaven is to give you a perfect righteousness. Where are you going to get that from? God says, I know somebody who had perfect righteousness. And I'm willing, if you'll put your faith in what my son did for you on the cross, I will count his righteousness for yours. Would that, would that be enough? <laughs> would it be enough? <laughs> what more could I ask? What else would I need? What You mean, I could add to that my good works? God said, no. No. You're going to mar the perfect righteousness that I want to give you. Well, so you give me that righteousness and then don't I, I, need, to, I need to maintain my fellowship with you in order to get to heaven? No. I'm going to seal you and save you. Because my, what my son did on the cross when it was finished, it was finished. He said so. He announced it as he was dying. It is finished. There's nothing that can be added to it. You see that that righteousness, that garment, that robe of righteousness that God places around you is the righteousness of His Son. I'm telling you, joy. I have joy because I know I'm saved. I know I am. I know my name is written in that book of life. Not because I'm a good person, but because my Savior is a perfect Savior. His righteousness is perfect. And the Bible says that God would impute that righteousness to you the moment that you believe on Jesus Christ. That is salvation, and that is our joy. Now, let's go on to the next one. Joy, what about peace? I realize I'm not going to have time to finish all this, but maybe we'll save the hope for next time. The joy that the God of hope may fill you with joy and peace in believing. Where is the peace? What the, where does the peace come from? Go to Romans chapter 5. The peace comes from knowing knowing and resting in a finished work of salvation. The peace comes from knowing that I am secure. You could say it this way. I don't like to and I'm not trying to just use big terms, but you could say the joy comes from knowing you are redeemed. Right? The cross is about redemption. What Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross was redemption, meaning He paid the price. But obviously, not everybody in the world receives that price that was paid for them. So, there's redemption there that covers the whole world. The joy is knowing that I am redeemed, 
But the peace comes from knowing I am justified. That I am justified. And I think that's what this young man in particular forgot. He, he didn't understand what it means to be justified. He got justification and sanctification confused. Sanctification is your walk with God. And your sanctification, you've got to work on that. You've got to work on walking and living like Jesus Christ. That's your sanctification. But your sanctification doesn't save you. You know what saves you? Justification. You can't work on your justification. You can't justify yourself. You can't help God justify you. Justification takes place in the courtroom in heaven. That's when God opens the record books. And God goes in and He crosses those sins that were imputed to you. He washes them all out. That takes place in heaven. That's just... And then not only does He wash that away, that would be pretty good. But in its place, He puts the righteousness of His Son. So if anybody ever cared to check the books in heaven, you could look at my life and not be too impressed. But if you went to heaven and could open the book, you'd be impressed. Because under my name in that book, it says, cleared. Cleared. I find no fault. Justified means you're cleared. That's what they do in a court, in a courtroom. When all the evidence is presented and the judge says, not guilty. The record is cleared. You're justified. You're free to go. <laughs> right? You could go to heaven and you could open the books and you could turn to my name. You might not like me. And you could go there hoping to find something. But when you look in that book, guess what? You won't find anything. The record's been cleared. It's all been washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. You know what that is? That's justification. Justification, you can't help God justify you. Justification is something God must do. Sanctification is something you must do. You must walk in the, in the light. You must get the book in your heart. You must pray. You must read. You must meditate. You must be obedient. And sanctification has to do with your fellowship with God. Sanctification has to do with your Christ-likeness in your life. Your separation. You separating yourself from the things of the world. Separating yourself unto the Lord. That's sanctification. And that, that grows. It's supposed to grow every year. As you, as you walk with God, you're sancti you should be increasing in your sanctification. Because the Bible says to a bunch of believers in 1 Thessalonians, this is the will of God concerning you, even your sanctification. So God desires the saved to then be sanctified. Grow closer. Be obedient. Walk with the Lord. But your sanctification is not your salvation. Your justification is your salvation. And when you know that, and when you finally get that down in your heart, you know what you suddenly have? Peace. If I didn't know whether I was saved or lost, if I couldn't be sure that I'm secure forever, you know what? Then there's no peace. In its place, there's just constantly striving. I hope I can be worthy today. I'm going to work. I'm going to try today. I'm going to try to... Lord, I hope, I, I hope you don't have to send me to hell today. I mean, you know what? There's no peace in a lifestyle like that. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, look at verse number 1. Romans is all about the doctrine of justification. Look at verse number 1. Therefore, being justified with God, I mean, being justified by faith, we have peace. It's the result of justification. 
being justified, therefore being justified by faith, what do we have? We have peace with God. Peace is when there's no more war. Peace is when two are no longer at odds with each other. Peace is when the, when the, there's, uh, the, the issue has been resolved. And now there's peace. God had an issue with us. He had a right, rightfully so. What's the issue? Sin! God had an issue. How was He going to solve that? Can't stop you from sinning. The only way He could resolve the issue was somebody had to go and pay the price for all the sinners. So Jesus Christ did. And God considered that, that payment that Jesus Christ made to be full payment. Full payment. Peace with God. Go to Psalm 143. Psalm 143. Psalm 143. And actually, this is the verse that provoked this whole message, because this is what I was reading this morning in my devotions, and then it made me... And then it was on my mind, and I, then when I went to read again Romans 15, I, it just hit me in the face. But Psalm 143. Look at 1 and 2. It says, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my supplications. In thy faithfulness answer me, and in thy righteousness. And enter not into judgment with thy servant. Now watch this, verse 2. For in thy sight shall no man living be justified. That's, that's an incredible statement. You know that in the sight of God it's impossible for Him to justify anybody that's alive? You know why? Because everybody alive is a sinner. And it's said in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, said God, God said, I will not justify the wicked. So God cannot justify anybody living. Isn't that what it says? For in thy sight shall no man living be justified. The only, the only way for you to be justified was for God to see you as already dead. Dead in Christ. My justification is because Jesus became a man and died and died for me. You know who cannot be charged with any sin? A dead man. You know who cannot be uh, punished for any sin? A dead man. You know who cannot be made to feel guilt for any sin? A dead man. So, you know who cannot be justified? A living man. If God didn't have a way... To be able to consider you dead, he could never justify you. No, in thy sight shall no man living be justified. Go with me to Job chapter 25. Just before the book of Psalms, Job chapter 25. Job 25, look at verse number 2. You remember the story of Job. He was a good man, and he was, he was a righteous man in the sense that he lived godly for his generation. But remember the Bible says there's really none truly righteous, because did Job have sin? Of course he did. But one of Job's problems is that he didn't see the sin in his own life. He justified himself. He considered himself to be righteous. He considered himself to be a good man. That's why Job couldn't understand why all those bad things were happening to him. 
And thus is grief, because Job said, well, what have I done wrong? God, what, what did I do wrong to deserve all this? I, I, I don't know of anything in my heart that's wrong. I'm, I'm, I'm clean in my own eyes. I'm justified. Lord, I'm right. I'm, I'm righteous. And one of the points of the book of Job was, was God showing, even showing Job, as good of man as you are, there's no one truly righteous in my eyes. There's no man that is truly can be justified as long as he's alive. Notice verse number uh, Job 26, verse number 2. I'm sorry, Job 25, verse number 2. Job 25. <clears throat> Dominion and fear are with him, God it is talking about. He maketh peace in his high places. Is there any number of his armies, and upon whom doth not his light arise? How then can man be justified with God? Or how can he be clean that is born of a woman? Right? How is it possible? You know, because that was Job's problem. He was justifying himself, and his, and his accusers here were no real true friends, but they did say some things that were true. And they're trying to tell Job, Job, how can you justify yourself? How can you be righteous in your own eyes? Look in verse number four. How then can man be justified with God? How can he be clean that is born of a woman? It's obviously impossible for any human to say, I'm absolutely without any stain. There's no blemish in my life. There's no fault in me. There's no sin in me. It's impossible. So it's impossible for God to justify anyone in whom there's sin. So God had to find a way God wanted to justify us, but how can He justify, how could He ever justify the living? He had to actually kill us in the person of Jesus Christ. He put His Son to death and considers the death of His Son to have been your death. Now, you're dead, so no sin can be imputed to you. You're dead, no blemish can be Put to your character. Notice in, um, go to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Let's see Paul's comment on these things. Colossians chapter 3. Look at verse number 3. For ye are, what? Dead. How is that possible? For ye are dead. You are dead? Really? If you're saved, God considers that old you to have been crucified with Christ. You were, the Holy Spirit put you into the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So once you were baptized into Christ, you were baptized into His death. God put you to death in His Son that you might be justified. You see that? How could you ever get out of that situation? You can't lose that, for you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. Go back to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Look at verse number 3. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ, and that's not talking about the water up here in this baptistry, because... When you get baptized here, you're not being baptized into Christ. You're being baptized into that water. But there's another baptism that took place the day you got saved. That's when the Holy Spirit put you into Christ. You became a part of Him. That was a work that 
happened without your knowledge. The Holy Spirit took care of that for you. He baptized you. Look at what it says. Notice, know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. Why? Because God could justify no man living. So he had to put you into the death of Jesus Christ. And because that's why Paul said in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, we don't have time to turn there. But Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live um, in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and died for me. So, crucified with Christ. Baptized into His death. So God could look upon you and I as being dead already in Christ. The old you had to die. You were worthy of death. The wages of sin is death. Right? You're a sinner. You needed to die. God could have just waited until your heart stopped beating and then send you to hell. Like you deserved. But God decided to prevent that by putting His Son there first. And then when you believe on Him, God justifies you. Go to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Look at verse number 21. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Let's read verse 20 also. Therefore, by the deeds of the law... By keeping the law, by living morally, you know, you could, some people imagine, they deceive themselves into thinking that they keep the Ten Commandments. I can't imagine anybody actually honestly telling you they do. But let's say, you know, somebody is deceived enough to say, okay, I, I, uh, how you get into heaven? By the deeds of the law? Oh, you're going you're to keep the Ten Commandments? Yeah, well, I'm trying. That's usually what they say next. Well, I'm trying. Oh, so it's not keeping them, it's just trying to keep them that God, that's all God wants, Right? Just try to keep them. Well, how many do you have to keep? How often do you have to keep them? At what point does God cut you off? If keeping the commandments is what gets you into heaven, then at what point does God cut you off? After you break one? After you break six? After you break ten? After you break them 14 times? What if it's just once? Do you know whether it's one or ten? When does God cut you off? After you break one or after you break, after you break 20? Well, I don't know. I'm hoping it's a hundred. Well, what if it's one? Because God never said it one way or the other, because the wages of sin is death. You've broken them all. And by the deeds of the law, look at what it says, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. So that excuse of, well, I'm trying to live right, God. You know I am. I'm trying to keep the commandments. I'm trying to... That doesn't hold any water in the court of heaven. You know, the guy who just shot his wife could go before the judge and said, well, I tried to do better. I tried to love her. Yeah, but there's a... There are fingerprints on the gun and her body on the floor. But I tried. You know, I really tried. Judge, if you really know, I tried for 40 years to put up with that woman. I mean, just one day, I lost it, and she's dead. Okay, well, does the 40 years, do you weigh the 40 against the, that one day? 40 years times 365 days, but then there's one day when he lost it, pulled the trigger, and she's dead. The judge says, well, you know what? Let's see. That's about 60,000 days weighed against one. So that's okay. You're good. Go. You're free. Because <laughs> your good far outweighs your bad. It was only, only a moment. It was only one bullet. I mean, what about all those days I didn't pull the trigger and wanted to? Those don't count for nothing, Judge. I mean, you know how many times I wanted to do that and I didn't? Don't I get any credit for the 40 years that I didn't do it? 
Of course not. God, don't I get any credit for all the times I tried to keep your commandments? No. No. By the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. Because there's sin there. And it's, ain't, it's not getting into heaven. But look at the next one. Verse 21. But now. But now. Here's God's method. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The Old Testament law and prophets speak about this. Even the righteousness of God which is by what? Faith of Jesus Christ. Unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Look, redemption, the cross. Just, which is your joy. Justification, which hinges upon redemption what it says, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption, that's the cross, that is in Christ Jesus. So because Christ redeemed us on the cross, now God can say to all those who believe, I justify you. To be justified means to be cleared. To be cleared. For your record to be clear. For you to be counted as if you hadn't done the thing that you're being accused of. So the law can stand there and accuse you and say, wait, he's guilty. I know that guy. Man in secret, when nobody's looking, he's broken commandment number 427. He's broken commandment number 3, number 7, number 8, number 15, about 100 times. This one, that one. I mean, the law has got your number. But justification is where God just silences the law because of the sacrifice of his son. And the only issue comes down to, do you believe And what my son did for you on that cross? Yes, Father. I don't have any choice. You've already said by the deeds of the law I can't be justified. And I don't have any... So I don't have anything to offer you that can get me out of the trouble that I'm in except to throw myself on your mercy. And the Father says, well, if you'll believe on my son, Jesus Christ, then I'll justify you from all things. Do you see it? Justification is my peace. Salvation is my joy, but my justification, knowing the record has been expunged, knowing the record is clear, even though I didn't deserve that, but knowing that God would do that in His mercy, knowing that you're justified before the Lord, we have, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God. The peace comes from the justification. Notice again Romans 3, verse 24, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood. We don't have time to define propitiation, but that's an important word. You should look that one up. To declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say at this time, His righteousness. Here it comes, verse 26. That He might be just that he might be just. Because God needed to be justified also. In justifying you, God can't do anything illegal. Because then somebody could charge God with being at fault. I mean, the devil himself could stand before God and said, wait a minute, God, 
You're letting Mike Veach go? You, you're clearing that guy? Don't you remember all the stuff I accused him of? I told you about all the stuff that he's done? You mean that guy gets eternal life? God, you're not, that's not fair. That's not right. There are angels that followed me who are still bound in chains in hell, and you're letting that guy go? You see, God has to be justified too. In other words, God has to be in the clear. That's what David said in Psalm 51. That thou mayest be justified. That thou mayest be clear when thou judgest. That means David was declaring his sin, the sin he committed with Bathsheba. He declared it himself. He made it public. He put it in the songbook of Israel. When they sat around and worshipped and said, everybody turn to page 51. They're singing about the king's sin with Bathsheba. Why would David make that public? 